Our God and Father, Lord, we praise you today and we honor you and we bless your holy name. Oh Lord, you are everything to us. We realize that you give us our life and our breath and everything that we have. Lord, that we owe our very existence to you and to an act of your kindness in creating us. And then God, how kind it is of you to continue to sustain our lives and uh, to bless us with so many rich and wonderful blessings in spite of what we deserve. Lord, you're so gracious and you're so merciful. And we honor you this morning for your grace. We praise you for your grace. And we worship you, Lord, because you are worthy of our longing. You're worthy of our desire. You're worthy of our praise. And we gather this morning, Lord, to hear from you, to look at your word very closely and to think deeply about the things that you have said to us. And we pray, Lord, that you would help us to become more like you as we come to know and understand you more and more. As we come to know and understand your kingdom, God, Help us to be the sons and daughters you've called us to be. Help us to be the servants, Lord, that you have called us to be. And help us, God, to escape the corruption that is in the world through lust. Lord, as we meditate on your word and we think deeply about who you are, We ask that you would change us and make us like you. We thank you for all that you're doing in our lives by your Holy Spirit. We thank you for the precious blood of Jesus by which we have been brought near to you. And Lord, we ask that you would strengthen our faith and encourage us in hope as we eagerly await your soon coming. Come quickly, Lord Jesus, we pray. And take us to be with you, Lord. We honor you and we bless you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Okay. So we've gotten through chapter 4 and verse 1. And today we're taking up at the bottom of page 38 on your handouts. By the way, there is a new handout today. If you don't have one. It's uh, number 41. So if you don't have a number 41, you need a number 41. So there's some on the back table there. Luann has one. If you need one, raise your hand. She'll get you one. Okay. So you remember that in chapter 4, verse 1, there's a transition where Paul uses the terms finally then. And so we know that for this letter of 1 Thessalonians, he's going to give us concluding remarks. He's going to kind of shift from the main body of things he's been saying, and he's going to shift to something which, if you will, is in conclusion, which is why he uses those words finally then. And uh, in chapter 4, verse 1 and following, he says, Finally then, brethren, we request and exhort you in the Lord Jesus that as you receive from us instruction... 
as to how you ought to walk and please God just as you actually do walk, that you excel still more. For you know what commandments we gave you by the authority of the Lord Jesus. And so Paul here makes reference to how he instructed them and how they ought to walk and please God. And so last week we spent uh, the whole lesson talking about that, talking about what that looks like, what does it mean for a Christian to walk and to please God. And uh, also we looked at some various other passages in the New Testament that talk about that very thing and kind of practically what that really means. What does it mean that we ought to walk and please God? What does it look like? How do we apply that to our life? What sorts of things does that encompass? And so we spent some time talking about that last week, namely on the, uh, well, on page 37 is a list of scriptures that kind of discuss those issues from, um, from Paul's writings and various other places in the New Testament. But then also on page 38, there's a whole bunch of bullet points there where we mentioned some very specific things that Christians are to do to walk or live and please God. And those things were confess their sins regularly, to pray continually and trust him, to pursue humility, to be content with God's will as revealed in his word, to be willing to suffer for his name, to evangelize the lost, to celebrate the Lord's table, to care for one another, to honor God in their marriage and families, and to be diligent and fruitful in all avenues of service. Now that was a list that I got from uh, MacArthur's commentary on this verse. And then I added a few more, which I thought ought to kind of be in our view, which kind of deal more with our heart and not so much with our actions. Uh, but nevertheless, these are also actions that we take to uh, to strengthen our faith and, and our thoughts and our intents. And so those are listed there toward the bottom of 38. To love God and delight in him sincerely from your heart. To regularly worship and praise God both corporately and privately. To treasure, delight in, and regularly feed on God's word. To commune with God regularly in prayer and meditation on his word. And then to participate regularly in fellowship with godly Christians for the purpose of growth and accountability. And of course I listed out scripture references for all of those. The ones from MacArthur's commentary, those are scriptures that he referenced. The ones from down below are scriptures that I referenced. And... To me, I see these fundamental things about Christian life that you can't really be a healthy, mature Christian if you ignore the basic disciplines of Christian life. You just can't do it. You you can't walk with a renewed mind and walk in the Spirit of God if you don't regularly allow the Word of God to come in and cleanse your mind. And it's not just that simple because... If you just, for example, read the Word of God to understand what it's saying, but then you're not committed to doing what it says, then you're 
a calloused or rebellious heart cuts you off from God's blessing. And so it's not just a matter of meditating on the Word of God, but it's a matter of a of a uh, faithful, trustful, repentant meditation on the Word of God. Are you with me? In other words, your heart has to be right. You you have to be willing to hear God and carry out what He says. And if you're willing to do that, then you'll reap the reward of walking in his blessing, a reward which is far better than anything this world has to offer. And um, unfortunately for us Christians, it, it takes a long time for us to really begin to learn that. Uh, some longer than others, <laughs> right? And a lot of it has to do with how you're shepherded, how you're instructed, how you're taught from the beginning which is what I was telling you last week, was when I was a young Christian, I was fortunate to have a godly man grab me and, and really uh, you know, make a disciple out of me, teach me what the basic disciplines of Christian life are, how to walk in them, and why, why I should walk in them. And, and that uh, you know, he, was, he was exhorting and imploring me and, and how that just put instilled in me um, some of these things that I think just really propelled me into the ability to, to have all the right stuff, if you will, to, to grow and cultivate my relationship with God. And I think that a lot of Christians miss out on that if they don't get properly discipled as a young Christian. And um, maybe going a little further with that, I don't think you can be properly discipled by just attending church. Um, I think that you you can be discipled that way, but I, I don't think it's nearly as effective. And it's not the kind of ministry that Jesus taught us to to use. The kind of ministry that Jesus taught us to use was what he did with the 12, which was personal disciple making. And so um, it's very important for young Christians to be personally discipled by a mature Christian who knows and understands and is a living example of, of living and walking in a fruitful, mature Christian life. You with me? So <clears throat> it's important uh, for that to happen. Um, but I think it's, it's, uh, it's, it's essential that a Christian learn how to live and walk in these basic disciplines. And without that, we are to some level or degree deprived of our of our ability to be able to walk and please God as we ought to. And so how important it is then for us to learn what these disciplines are and to learn how important they are to carry them out. And, and I, I, I have it broken down to three. Basically, daily meditation on the Word of God, daily communion and uh, through prayer with God, and then regular fellowship with godly Christians. And uh, <clears throat> how important those things are. And if you're, if you're lacking those things, I guarantee you, you're not living in the kind of fruitful, abundant life that Christ desires for you to live in. Um, so, uh, how important those things are. But uh, again, we have them listed out here. Uh, there's a lot of things that, that are listed here. And again, you know, if we view Christian life as a list of duties... Right? We're missing the point. 
we, we don't do these things to earn God's favor. We do these things because God has given us his favor in Christ. Are you with me? It's just like it is with the gospel and with salvation. You know, we, we don't obey God in order to be saved. We obey God because we've been saved, because of his gracious love to us. Amen? So it is with sanctification. Although it is a tremendous benefit <laughs> to have God's blessing, but because we do the things that are pleasing in his sight. And surely those who please God receive, receive blessing for God, even in this life. Um, but that's not to be our chief motivation. We don't serve God because God blesses us. We serve God because he's worthy to be served. Amen? Are you with me? It's the whole difference between a man-centered approach to Christian life and a God-centered approach to Christian life. Are you with me? We serve God because God has called us to serve him. And because he alone has the authority to do such a thing. We serve God because he's set us apart for a people belonging to himself. Because we are a privileged people above all other people in the creation. Amen? A people who are going to reap his eternal reward. Amen. And, and uh, <clears throat> we serve God because of what God has done for us. And we do it then because we love him. Because he has set his love upon us first. Amen? So it's important that we do those things for the right uh, reasons and with the right motives. Nevertheless, we do, if you will, have a list of duties to carry out. We're obligated to walk in the spirit and not in the flesh, which means we're going to carry out these things. Um, <clears throat> we're obligated because God has commanded us how we ought to walk and please him, right? Which is what he says in verse 2. He says, for you know what commandments we gave you by the authority of the Lord Jesus. So Paul didn't come with cleverly invented stories trying to um, trick the Christians into think it was the best thing for them. <laughs> Are you with me? On the contrary, he commanded them in the authority of the Lord Jesus Christ to carry out the duties of Christian life. Are you with me? And uh, this is exactly what he means by what he says. You know what commandments we gave you by the authority of the Lord Jesus. Paul again brings them to remembrance of the things he said, stating, for you know. Notice that again. Remember how Paul had been saying that through chapter 1 and through chapter 2 and through chapter 3, this idea? For you know. He kept bringing them to account of their own remembrance. Well, here he says it again. For you know. This time, what is it? the commandments we gave you by the authority of the Lord Jesus. It wasn't Paul's word that he came preaching, but God's. And he did it by the authority of the Lord Jesus. This he says so that they will not take his gentle exhortations for granted, but understand that what he says here comes from the highest authority, even the Lord Jesus himself. God has indeed commanded us to live in a manner worthy of him, and the Christian faith indeed holds forth divine imperatives that are to be fully obeyed. We don't keep the commandments in order to be saved. We keep them because we are saved. 
They are our delight and our pursuit. And so I want to be sure as I start to move through this that you understand what I'm saying. We keep the commandments because we are saved. We don't keep the commandments in order to be saved. You understand? If we're learning anything in Pastor Tim's going through the book of Galatians, we have learned that you cannot be saved by trying to keep the commandments of God. On the contrary, it's your failure to keep the commandments of God that have condemned you before God. Amen? Nobody can perfectly keep the commandments of God. And when they failed one time, they incurred his eternal wrath. Which is why we need a Savior. Amen? And so Jesus has paid the full penalty of our sins and failures to keep God's commandments. Right? And washed away the guilt of our sins. Satisfied the wrath of God towards our sins. Right? And has, has imputed his righteousness to our account. And done all of this because of his own purpose and free grace. Amen? And now he's asking, will you please obey me? <laughs> now that I've loved you and given you my favor and shown you this grace, walk in my way. Be my holy people. Amen? Now he's asking us to be willing to do it freely from our hearts. Now that he has, if you will, paid in full the consequences for our failures. It's almost too good to believe. <laughs> Amen? But <clears throat> we need to, as a Christian, we need to be able to make a proper distinction between the law and the gospel. Okay? We, sh- we shouldn't just look at God's commandments as something that he gave in the Old Testament that's been completely fulfilled and now we ignore. Amen? We don't ignore the commandments of God, do we? What, what are they then to us? They are a light to our path. They're a lamp to our feet. They are that perfect standard that teaches us and shows us what God's character and nature is like. And if you will, the, the Ten Commandments specifically, when, when we speak of the commandments, you understand there's 640 commandments in the Old Testament. And that those 640 are summed up in ten, right? Of course, the ten are summed up in two, right? Two tables of the law. But the Ten Commandments, if you will, for the Christian are ten categories, if you will, of relational activity to God that help us to, to see all activity that we carry out in, in full view of God's holiness. Okay? And they, they come to us typically in negatives. Right? Thou shalt not. Right? They tell us what not to do for the most part. But in so doing, then, they also uh, uh, instruct us then what is acceptable before God. Right? Um, but we need to understand how the commandments serve in the life of a Christian. Okay? They're not just some archaic thing that now has been fulfilled that we pay no attention to. Every one of them is still binding upon us as far as we are obligated to walk in the Spirit of God and to do what pleases Him. Are you with me? So they're not binding on us in the sense that if we violate one, we'll die forever. Because having become Christians, what happens now? Well, if any one of you sins, little children, 
He has an advocate. Right? But what do they do? Well, they instruct us what God's standards are. They instruct us what God's will, what his desire, what his command for our life is. Okay? And so it's important to make a proper distinction. We could spend many weeks talking about the distinctions between the law and the gospel. But what I would suggest is that every Christian ought to understand that. And um, for me, really, it wasn't something I learned until after I'd been a Christian more than 15 years, how to properly distinguish between the law and the gospel. But uh, I think that it's important for Christians to know. And I would suggest that every Christian be able to properly make distinctions between the law and the gospel. If you can't do that, you need to be able to do that. You got something to study. You got something to go learn about. So, <clears throat> in other, so going on, we don't keep the commandments in order to be saved. We keep them because we are saved. They are our delight and our pursuit. First Corinthians seven nineteen. Listen to what Paul says there. <clears throat> he says, circumcision is nothing, and uncircumcision is nothing. But what matters is the keeping of the commandments of God. Let each man remain in that condition in which he was when he was called. And so, you know, Paul's, Paul's uh, point here, of course, in this context is he's dealing with the issue of circumcision. And, and, of course, the idea of circumcision was through circumcision, a Jew would adhere himself to the covenant that God made with Abraham. Okay? And um, Paul's point is, is that the, the idea is not just necessarily some outward duty to a specific thing that I, identifies us in a religious sense, but it is an actual obedience to God that's important. And um, uh, here he makes that very clear. He says what matters is the keeping of the commandments of God. Now, of course, in this context, he's talking about how they practically carry out Christian obedience in their life. Okay? And uh, it's, it's an important thing to understand. I go on. In fact, the keeping of God's commandments is the assurance that we have, that we both love Christ and our faith is real and genuine. So, building on the statement I made at first, that we don't keep the commandments in order to be saved, we keep them because we are saved. Okay? So that the, the New Testament would speak to us in this sense, that the saved people are the ones that keep the commandments. The people that are in right relationship with God are the ones who do what God expects. Right? And so, if you will, it kind of speaks to those, those issues as if they are one. Listen to some of the New Testament. First uh, John 5, 3. There it says, For this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments, and his commandments are not burdensome. So what is being said here? Well, this is what love to God looks like. What does it look like practically if you have it? Well, it looks like somebody doing what God expects. It looks like somebody adhering to God's character and his nature. It looks like somebody doing the things that please God. Why? Because they love him. Right? And for those who do that, guess what? Those commandments aren't what? They're, they're not a burden. Why? Well, that, like I said, they are our delight. They're our pursuit. We, we want to please God. We want to do His will. We want to do His bidding. God forbid that we should sin against Him. 
Amen? We don't want to sin against God. We want to do what's right in the sight of God. That's our desire. Because we love Him. Right? If you love God, you're, you're not going to want to violate His will. True? John 14, Jesus says this very specifically. He says, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. He who has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. And he who loves me shall be loved by my Father, and I will love him and will disclose myself to him. Here's what Jesus is saying. You want to know what love for me, devotion to me looks like in your life? Here's what it looks like. Keeping God's commandments. Obeying the voice of God. Doing the right thing. Not just a mere professor, but somebody who carries out the love of God in their actions. Amen? So in other words, if you have true saving faith, here's what it looks like. Obedience to God. If you have the kind of faith that saves, it has a product, it has a fruit that comes from it. Amen? And that's why we we have a term like mere professors. I think it's a great term, frankly. A lot of people say they're Christians. Amen? Especially in America. A lot of people say they're Christians. Right? But how do we know? How do we know we're Christians? Are you with me? Much less than anybody else. Here's how we know. This is how we know what love for God looks like. We keep His commandments. We don't violate His commandments. Do you violate the commandments of God? I would ask you to question your salvation. Are you with me? You understand what I'm saying? If you have the kind of faith that loves and trusts in Christ, your life should have evidence of that by obedience to God's Word. Okay? Now, you and I both know your obedience isn't perfect. Right? And you're in this process of sanctification. Right? There's a pattern in your life. Here's what I'm saying. There's a pattern in your life. The pattern is twofold. Decreasing frequency of sin and ungodly behavior and increasing frequency of righteousness and godly behavior. Amen? Amen? And of course, of course, in your own heart, that's coupled with longings and desires for what is right and true and good in your own heart. Amen? Really, that's the motive behind our obedience. And so, <clears throat> how important this is. Listen to what John says in 1 John 2, verses 4 and following. He says, The one who says, I have come to know him, and does not keep his commandments is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word, in him the love of God has truly been perfected. By this we know that we are in him. The one who says he abides in him ought himself to walk in the same manner as he walked. Amen? The he being who? Jesus, right? So, the one who says he know him ought himself to walk in the same manner as he walked. How did Jesus walk? He obeyed the commandments of God, and he didn't violate the commandments of God. Are you with me? And so it's important for a Christian to be able to understand this truth. 
It's not obedience to God's commandments that save us, but obedience to God's commandments is our new life purpose because we've been saved. Amen? And all of that because in our heart we love God. We're, we're motivated by a loving devotion to God because He's worthy of it. He's worthy of our love. He's worthy of our devotion because He's so glorious in and of Himself and so perfect and wonderful and awesome and good. Amen? Amen. <clears throat> it should be pointed out that God's commandments are not unclear. Here's the other thing. It, it's not confusing, family, what God expects of us. There isn't some commandment that's so overly complex that we can't really figure out what it is that God means by what he said. Okay, if, if you're struggling with that, it's probably because you're struggling to justify some behavior that you're trapped in and under conviction of. Okay, it's not unclear what God has commanded of us. Doesn't mean we don't have <clears throat> lustful desires to do what's evil. We certainly do. And those can be overpoweringly strong at times. Amen? <clears throat> but that doesn't change what's right and wrong. God has made it very clear. And if we're going to carry that out, we're going to do it by the power of his spirit as we surrender to his will. Are you with me? Here's the other thing. You don't even have to do it in your own strength. God gives the strength. What you have to do is have a war inside your heart and decide what, what you really want to do. Do you really want to obey God? Or do you really want to obey sin that's in your heart? And, and once you've made, up, made, made that decision, all you need to do is surrender to God's will. He'll give you the power to do the right thing. Are you with me? And if you fail, here's what you do. You run to Christ. You don't run away from Christ. You don't go hide in the guilty bushes with Adam. <laughs> hide in the bushes with guilty Adam. Okay? You, you, don't, you don't go cower in shame and, and seek to, 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 to go out of God's presence, right? You come into the light where God is because we know that God is loving and forgiving and restoring. Are you with me? And so the idea is to look to God for strength to do what he requires of us. Amen? He will strengthen you. You can overcome your sin problem by faith. Believe it? Yes. It's true. It's true. <clears throat> so, God's commandments are not unclear. They are contained in both the Old and New Testaments. God has given us... So, when he says commandments, when Paul says the keeping of the commandments is what matters, when Jesus says, if you love me, you keep my commandments, or when John says, for this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments, what commandments is he talking about? All of them. All of God's commandments. Old Testament and New Testament. None of them supersede the other. Are you with me? They're all God's commandments. And they are to be obeyed. <laughs> they are to be adhered to. Right? And if you say you love Christ, but you don't keep His commandments, the Bible says you're a liar. You see, it's not unclear about that issue either. It's very clear. In other words, don't be a mere professor, right? Be a true believer. Rely on God for his strength and walk in his commandments. 
walk in obedience to what pleases him. Amen? So, of course, you know, he's, gonna, he's going to have a real-life application for these Thessalonians that is uh, a very difficult thing for them to carry out. I want to read for you some stuff that I really think we all need a little bit of background here. I promised to do this for you once before, but I'm going to do it now. And that is to give you a little background on what the Greco-Roman world was like in regard to the issue of sexual immorality. In verses, uh, chapter 4, verses 3 through 6, this is what Paul says. He says, For this is the will of God, your sanctification. That is, that you abstain from sexual immorality, that each of you know how to possess his own vessel in sanctification and honor, not in lustful passion like the Gentiles who do not know God, and that no man transgress and defraud his brother in the matter, because the Lord is the avenger in all these things, just as we also told you before and solemnly warned you. So he's going to go into this discussion about sexual immorality for these Thessalonians, and he's commanding them that they abstain from sexual immorality. And he says that he is giving them this by the authority of the Lord Jesus. And uh, if you will, living in the culture we live in, we can see that this is a great struggle, right? But let me tell you, it was an even greater struggle in their day because sexual immorality was a part of their everyday life. That's what the culture was like. Not only that, it was a part of their everyday life because of two things. Number one, it's the way they lived in their households. Number two, it's the religion they practiced in the various cults and, and uh, uh, the various uh, uh, idolatrous pagan religions that they were involved in, of which there were hundreds even right there in Thessalonica, hundreds of different kinds of pagan cults and immoral religions, okay? And what you'll find in the study of ancient religions and and even in the Bible is that most any time there is some sort of idolatry that's involved, one of the chief practices that goes along with that idolatry is sexual immorality, okay? Which is one of the main reasons why God had commanded the the uh, Israelites not to be involved in the religion of the Canaanites when they came into the promised land because every single one of those Canaanite religions was steeped in sexual immorality which is a very impure thing in the sight of God because the marriage relationship family is a picture of fidelity to God okay it's rooted in the very relationship between a male and female that God created in the garden That's how he intended it from the beginning. Those are the words of Jesus, right? A relationship of monogamy and of fidelity, right? So so that uh, what happens as soon as one begins to violate the first commandment, thou shalt have no other gods before me, I am the Lord, right? Those idolatrous practices whereby people are actually worshiping demons and not just an idol, right? They immediately lead them into sexual immorality. Why? Because sexual immorality is a violation of human fidelity at its very core. Are you with me? You cannot commit sexual immorality without defrauding another human being. And defrauding the fidelity that you have with another human being. (coughs) Much less defile yourself in the sight of God. 
Amen? Okay, so this is a little uh, little box. And these commentaries, sometimes they'll give you a little thing like this that kind of gives you some additional background. This thing says, sexual conduct in the Greco-Roman world. This is a First and Second Thessalonians commentary um, that I'm reading from. The Greco-Roman world had a tolerant attitude towards sexual conduct, particularly sexual activity outside of marriage. Marriages were not usually love matches, but family arrangements. Typically, men in their middle 20s were paired with young women barely in their teens whom they had never met. So it was expected that married men would have sexual relations with other women, such as prostitutes, female slaves, or mistresses. This explains why Demosthenes, 384 through 322 B.C., could state matter-of-factly, mistresses we keep for our pleasure, concubines for our day-to-day physical well-being, and wives to bear us legitimate children and to serve us trustworthy gardens over our households. That attitude had not changed at all some three centuries later is evidence from the words of the Stoic philosopher Cato, 95-46 B.C., who praised those men who satisfied their sexual desires with a prostitute rather than another man's wife. A tolerant view of adultery and other sexual practices can also be seen from a variety of other sources. For example, funerary inscriptions reveal that concubinage was common. Prostitution was a business like any other, and profit from prostitutes working at brothels was an important source of revenue for many respectable citizens. Innkeepers and owners of cook shops frequently kept slave girls for the sexual entertainment of their customers. Adulterous activity was in fact so widespread that the Emperor Augustus established a new code of laws having to do with adultery and marriage, the Julian Laws in a failed attempt to reform sexual practices. Within such a social context, it is not surprising that the Jewish Christian leaders of the Jerusalem church felt the need to include in their letter to the Gentile Christians a warning to abstain from sexual immorality. Paul issues the same warning to the Christians in Thessalonica. That gives you a little bit of background. Here's some more from MacArthur's commentary. His is a little bit more in-depth and a little bit more enlightening than that. <clears throat> MacArthur's commentary on First Thessalonians. Christians understood that those are the dogmas of a, society permit, a society's permissive sexual outlook. The Apostle Paul could have recognized the same tendencies in his day because, if anything, the utterly pagan Greco-Roman culture he ministered in was more sexually perverse and debauched than the contemporary Western culture, which for centuries has had the beneficial influence of Christianity on its institutions. Thessalonica was part of the debased Greco-Roman culture. The city was rife with such sinful practices as fornication, adultery, homosexuality, including pedophilia, transvestism, men dressing like women, and a wide variety of pornographic and erotic perversions all done with a seared conscience and society's acceptance, hence with little or no accompanying shame or guilt. Unlike people in Western nations today, 
The Thessalonians grew up with no Christian tradition to support laws and standards that forbid the grosser manifestations of immorality. Pagan Greek society apparently did not have civil laws to prohibit immoral behavior. Further contributing to the sexually permissive environment in Thessalonica was the influence of the mystery religions that advocated ritual prostitution. They taught that if a follower engaged with a temple prostitute, he would be communing transcendently with the deity uh, the prostitute represented. For example, the temple of Aphrodite on the Corinthian Acropolis employed 1,000 priestesses who were essentially religious prostitutes. Thus, people did not consider fornication and adultery, adultery illegal or immoral. The idolatrous religions actually condoned them. For the Thessalonians, then, sexual sin was more customary and more tolerated than it is even by today's standards. The reality, that reality provides a clearer perspective of Paul's ministry at Thessalonica. When he, Silas, and Timothy planted the church there, they rescued people out of that pornographic society. Many of those new converts who had lived in immorality no doubt had mistresses, and many of the women likely engaged in harlotry. Their rather sudden entrance into the kingdom of God required the Thessalonians to break with their pagan background. That requirement presented them with strong challenges. Old habits and the pressures from a wicked culture would seek to draw them away from their new life and back to the old. Paul, as their pastor, was concerned enough to begin the exhortation portion of this epistle with commands regarding immoral conduct. Though the surrounding culture continually lowered its moral standards, the Thessalonians could not lower theirs. Paul's requirement that the Thessalonian believers abstain from sexual sin did not involve a relative morality. It encompassed an absolute standard. I thought that would be helpful information for you. And uh, that would have took up a lot more pages of notes for me to write. <coughs> so <clears throat> the idea to understand is, is that these people that received the gospel in Thessalonica, in their regular pagan life, sexual immorality was commonplace. It was something that they were <coughs> indulging in every day. And it was just profusely evident in their culture everywhere they went. Even at the restaurant, if you will. No matter where they went, sexual immorality was there before them. It was an accepted practice in the culture. So one can only think about when a Christian got saved in that culture, some of the struggles that they were involved with with sexual immorality. You understand? They were tremendous because it was fully acceptable. And of course, if you were the kind of person that uh, uh, went against this or, or spoke against this, right? You would surely be, surely be ostracized, if not outright persecuted for such a position, right? Not only that, but think about how you would be belittled and how, I mean, these people thought of this as a holy thing, <laughs> as a sacred thing. And, and uh, that's how accepted it was. And so it presents a whole set of unique challenges that I think we, we have a sense of in modern America, but I don't think we really grasp the, the, uh, the strength of a command like Paul gives the Thessalonians when he tells them to abstain from sexual immorality and how important that is, right? 
And of course, uh, the word that he uses for sexual immorality here is the word uh, porneia, <clears throat> which really deals with any kind of sex outside of marriage, which means it can also include adultery. But its primary meaning is is uh, two unmarried people having sexual intercourse. Okay, that in the Bible is a sin. It's called fornication. Okay, so <clears throat> that's a little background of of uh, our approach here then to verse three. For this is the will of God, your sanctification. That is that you abstain from sexual immorality. And so he, he makes it very clear. He says, for this is the will of God, your sanctification. This statement is Paul's unequivocal affirmation that God's desire for Christians is that they be holy and in a state of blameless holiness. In fact, he had just finished praying in 3.13 and asking that God would establish your hearts without blame and holiness. Now that was his prayer for the church before he kind of went into this concluding statement. He was praying that they would be abounding in love, right? And that God would establish their hearts blameless in holiness. And so the idea of pursuing holiness and that you would be established in holiness without blame, which means that there cannot be any charge brought against you in your life, that God's desire is that your life be blameless. Well, with that, he's going to kind of jump into this whole issue of sexual purity in their culture and what it, uh, sexual purity in the life of these Christians. In order to clarify and instruct further, he says in no uncertain terms that this is the will of God, your sanctification. Your sanctification is your holiness, your continued growth in his perfection, your abstaining from sin and living and walking in continual repentance and righteousness before him. The word for sanctification is the Greek hagiasmos, meaning the state of purification or purity or holiness. Paul here makes it crystal clear that the will of God or his commanded and moral will of desire is that we be pure without sin and live in a state of purity and blameless holiness. This is no foreign idea to the teaching of Jesus or the apostles, okay? So Paul's kind of making this um, really unequivocal because he puts it in these terms. He says, this is God's will. In other words, I don't want you to be confused about what God thinks, right? That's what he's saying. This is God's will. This is God. This is what God desires. Are you with me? This is what God has commanded. And then he's going to kind of jump off into this whole issue of sexual purity. But the point that Christians should be pursuing holiness or living in purity or living a life that's without blame is nothing new to the teaching of Jesus or the apostles. Jesus says in Matthew 5.48, Therefore, you are to be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. And of course, if you're familiar with the context of that passage, the idea is that you are to be seeking after the perfection of Christ in your daily behavior before God and in the motives and intents that are in your heart. Sermon on the Mount. Amen? Or how about Paul in 2 Corinthians 7, 1? He says this, Therefore, having these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from all defilement of flesh and spirit, perfecting holiness in the fear of God. 
Now, you remember last week I told you that sanctification was that unique part of salvation where we cooperate with God to some level or degree. Recall that? I want you to see these words that Paul says here in 2 Corinthians 7. He says, let us cleanse ourselves. You see that? Now, we all know that God is the primary agent in sanctification, right? God is cleansing us. God is making us practically holy. Nevertheless, the Bible commands us to do what? Cleanse ourselves. Do you see the part that we play in sanctification? Let us cleanse ourselves from all defilement of flesh and spirit, perfecting holiness in the fear of God. We have an obligation. We have a responsibility. Amen? To be what? Without blame. In holiness before God. Philippians 2.15, he says there that you may prove yourselves to be blameless and innocent, children of God above reproach in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation among whom you appear as lights in the world. He's not unclear there, is he? What should our life look like? Well, how about this? Blameless and innocent children of God above reproach. That's quite a calling, wouldn't you say? You suppose we ought to be kind of lax about that? You suppose we ought to have a postmodern attitude toward our own sanctification? You think God is serious about this thing? First Peter 1, 14 and following, As obedient children... Do not be conformed to the former lusts which were yours in your ignorance. But like the Holy One who called you, be holy yourselves also in all your behavior. Because it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. Crystal clear. God wants us to live a holy life. He wants us to be without blame. He wants us to be above reproach. What does that mean we need to do? We need to cleanse ourselves from all defilement of flesh and spirit. This is our pursuit. This is what we seek to lay hold of. This is our driving goal. This is our objective for life. Are you with me? I don't even want to argue about how we can't do it. That's everybody's excuse. That's everybody's first excuse when they open up their mouth and say something they're not supposed to say. Or they do something with their hands they're not supposed to do. What's their first excuse? Well, man, I, 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 can't, I just can't do this thing. The standard's too high. Where are you reading that in the Bible? Are you with me? It's very important for Christians to understand. We are in the pursuit of God's holiness in all of our own behavior. And we are responsible and obliged to the Spirit of God to do what is right in the sight of God. Amen? And, and one might say, well, with what intensity or with, to what degree should we be committed to this thing? Well, to the degree that Jesus had had to have his own life sacrificed on a cross to die for your failures. Does that turn up the volume a notch? Are you with me? We sh- we sh- we're not to have a lax attitude toward our own personal holiness. The problem is the culture we live in just constantly bombarding us with sin from every side. And we get worn down and we get tired and we get discouraged. 
okay? Which is why we need a daily renewal in the Word of God. Which is why we need to commune every day in prayer with God and seek Him for strength so that we can be the blameless children of God above reproach He's called us to be. Amen? You follow me? You with me? First John 3, 6 through 10. No one who abides in him sins. No one who sins has seen him or knows him. Little children, let no one deceive you. The one who practices righteousness is righteous, just as he is righteous. The one who practices sin is of the devil, for the devil has sinned from the beginning. The Son of God appeared for this purpose, that he might destroy the works of the devil. No one who is born of God practices sin. Because his seed abides in him, he cannot sin because he is born of God. By this, the children of God and the children of devil are obvious. Anyone who does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor the one who does not love his brother. You see, it's, it's not unclear. It's very clear. The one who practices sin is what? Of the devil. So you're wondering, well, how can that certain couple say that they're Christians, yet they're shacked up together, not married, and having sexual intercourse regularly? How can they do that? Well, because they're liars. The Bible's not unclear about that. You understand the point? The one who practices sin is of the devil. The one who lives in a continual practice of immorality does not belong to Christ. Why? Because if the Spirit of God is in the heart of that individual, they will be utterly convicted by their sin. And they will not continue to practice that sin. God will be putting such pressure upon their conscience that he will deliver them from that sin. Okay? I suppose it is possible for a believer to be stubbornly rebellious to God to the point that they actually um, wind up under his judgment so severely as to die. I suppose that can happen. Okay, but that's not the norm. That's not typically what happens. What typically happens with a Christian who continues to practice sin is the weight of heaviness on their conscience becomes so heavy that they utterly, by the power of God, break from that sin. And then usually leave a trail of severe consequences in relationships behind them. Or in guilt or shame with such an inability to continue to cope with life that they live far short of the blessing of God and the kind of abundant life that he desires for them. And even as I tell you this, there are all kinds of examples going through your mind of people's lives you've seen in shambles because of these kinds of things that have happened. Right? The point is this, family. When Jesus says, look, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not do what I say? He wasn't playing games. Are you with me? And I'm telling you that people play games with God all the time. But God is serious about sin. You better believe he's serious about sin. And he's serious about sexual immorality. And uh, we need to understand that very clearly, that God is very opposed to sexual immorality in any form, okay? Even though you may look around in the culture around you and see that it is a perfectly acceptable form of behavior, 
you must understand, in the Christian church, it is not acceptable at all, period, ever. Okay? It is not an acceptable practice in the Christian church, period, ever. Okay? Not only the practice of it, but the intent and the thought of it in the heart is sinful before God. It's impure. It's what the Bible calls impurity or sensuality. Okay, those are typically sins that are sins of the heart, sins of the mind, sins of the eye. Okay, those things are improper because they're the motive that produces the action. Right? In fact, it is clear that it is because of the sin and impurity that is in the world that God's wrath is coming upon the world and it is from this sin and impurity that we turn to Christ when we repent, the first step we took in trusting Christ for salvation. Listen, the wrath of God is coming upon the world because of its sin and impurity. Let me put it a different way in this context. The wrath of God is coming upon the world because of sexual immorality. Understand? That's something God throws people into hell for. Clear? Romans 1.18, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. Or Ephesians 5, 5-8, For this you know with certainty, that no immoral or impure person or covetous man who is an idolater has an inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Because of what things? Immorality, impurity, covetousness, idolatry. Right? How about Colossians 3, 5, and 7? Therefore, consider the members of your earthly body as dead to immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and greed, which amounts to idolatry. For it is on account of these things that the wrath of God will come. And in them you once walked when you were living in them. You see, in the Christian life, it's a contrast. That's the way we used to live. That's the way we once walked. But now what do we do? We count ourselves as dead to immorality and impurity, right? To passion and evil desire, to greed and idolatry. Those are things we turned our back on. In fact, God will destroy all people who live in the practice of all such sins and willfully belittle him by their sinful rebellion against him. No one who lives in the practice of sin shall enter heaven or God's presence at any time. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, 9 and following. Or do you not know that the unrighteous shall not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor homosexuals, nor thieves, nor the covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers shall inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified, but you were justified in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ and in the spirit of our God. There God makes it very clear. It's not unclear. Here's what he's saying. People who live in the continual practice of these sins, listen, will not inherit the kingdom of God. You understand the difference between living in the practice of sin 
and committing a sin once or twice or even many times. You understand what I'm saying? Living in the practice of sin is, look, you've calloused your conscience, you continue to do it, even though you, you are under conviction, your conscience is telling you, I'm not supposed to do this, God doesn't approve of this, this isn't right, but you know what, I'm the king of my own ship here, I do what I want anyway. Right? When you reach that point, okay, you begin to live in the practice of a sin with a calloused heart, it's good evidence that you're probably not saved. Listen, family, if you know you ought not to be doing something you're doing, you better stop it, and you better stop it now. <clears throat> Revelation 21.8, But for the cowardly and unbelieving and abominable and murders and immoral persons and sorcerers and idolaters and all liars, their part will be in the lake that burns with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. So who does it say that hell is reserved for? People who live in the continual practice of those sins. Those sins are what characterizes their life. Pretty clear stuff, I'd say. Agreed? It is therefore the will of God that those whom he has called and chosen should live in a state of purity and holiness, continuing to grow in sanctification. Another way to state this is to say that the Christian's life should demonstrate a pattern of decreasing frequency of sin and an increasing frequency of righteous and godly behavior accompanied by the worship and service of God. So let me sum up a lot of the comments I made today in that statement. Okay, here's what I'm saying. How does this apply? How do we discern uh, these issues in our lives and in the lives of others we're concerned about? Here's how. The Christian's life should demonstrate a pattern of decreasing frequency of sin and an increasing frequency of righteous and godly behavior accompanied by the worship and service of God. You understand? There's a pattern that's going on in the life of everybody who's been saved. What's that pattern? Sanctification. An increase in holiness and righteousness and godliness and a decreasing frequency of sin and ungodliness. Amen? Okay. Let's pray. God, our Father, I I pray that you would uh, help us, Lord, not to ignore the clear teaching of Scripture. Regardless of how strong the war against sin may be, God, help us to see clearly what you have said. And Lord, more than that, for any who might be trapped in ungodly behavior, I pray, Father, that you would uh, help them to see that all they must do is surrender to your will and look to you for strength to overcome the struggle. That, Lord, you give power to overcome sin. And, Father, I pray that um, by faith we would continue to believe in your power and trust you for your power and seek to follow after you, God, and to please you in every respect. Oh, Lord, I thank you for the standard that you give us, that we would be holy and blameless and beyond reproach, Help each one of us, God, in our struggle to become more holy.
to overcome and to be in every respect what you have called us to be. We thank you for your grace and your love to us. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.